Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm very excited on this episode to welcome Carmen Rubin. She's a children's book author. She wrote Socialize and Ash D Meets Birdman Owl, which is actually an iPhone and iPad app you can get as well, and uh, The Gifted Guitar and many other books. She also has her own publishing company, which she started because it is so difficult to break into the publishing company, so she wanted to figure out a more democratic way to help authors out. And she's a singer. Um, you can see her at the Iridium and other major New York joints. Um, she does perform all over the country, but I live in New York, so that's the kind of place where I can have the pleasure of seeing her. It was such a privilege to do this interview. I met Carmen because she had been coming to the show. A lot of our guests come back as audience members and watch, but this was the reverse where she came as an audience member several times and I got to know her and find out about her own career. And it's a real joy to interview someone who is so honest about the struggles, both the emotional and logistical of trying to live your dreams um, and coping with reality as it is. And it was also a treat to speak with someone whose career is just taking off um, because Employee of the Month likes to honor those people as well. My dog does not like to honor any people. She just shoved off the computer and created this little office for myself in my closet little sound booth and uh, my dog has quickly taken over because like most American parents I spoil my children even the ones who are really furry and may not actually be human although that's up for debate it's up for debate use your words use your words lady use your words she isn't speaking right now she's just really shy my dog anyways without further ado please enjoy my interview with Carmen Rubin it was one of my favorites I know you're not supposed to say that about children or guests but this was just such a privilege to have her on. So I'm very excited to have on Employee of the Month, Ms. Carmen Rubin, who is a musician, a publisher, and a phenomenal children's book author, as well as an activist, I would say, because you run the Community Refuge Education and Recreation Center, Yes, mm-hmm. which is a mouthful, which is how all nonprofits, you're ready for Washington, D.C., because you already have an acronym <laughs> ready to go. And Carmen brought her lovely daughter here as well. Um, this must be very exciting for both of you to receive the Employee of the Month Award. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is. I'm excited. We are in the Writers Guild, so if you hear cries, those are just writers uh, dying slowly as their scripts <laughs> don't get bought or don't get bought for what they would like. Um, but otherwise, we, we are here trying to help console them to talk about Carmen's work. Um, so I want to actually start with your own story, because you are a storyteller, but I wanted to hear about you. You grew up in San Francisco. Yeah. Everything? Everything. Okay. Do not hold back. This okay. Is, this is now. You should take your coat off. I don't know why sure, you're wearing a parka in the heat. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. San Francisco. Um, you come from a musically talented family? I come from a musically talented family, um, born and raised in the church, you know, and... Uh, which, 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 um, practice, which sect? Um, Pentecostal. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Hand clapping, foot stomping Yes, stuff. yeah. I went, I went to Episcopalian school and was raised by someone who's Catholic who baptized me, and I'm 100% Jewish, so I, I know okay. a little bit. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but, but not Pentecostal. I'm not as familiar it's interesting. with... interesting. My, my husband's... Uh, Father grew up Jewish. Yes. And converted to, and now he is a Pentecostal preacher, which is really interesting. Oh, no, that's fascinating, actually. It is very fascinating. We're actually doing a story on his life, too. Yeah, it's called Kosher. It's good. I like yeah. that. I know that's you That's my kind of kosher I like. Exactly. I still like shrimp, but I like um, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I grew up in the church and uh, uh, very, my parents were divorced by the time I was five years old. And what was what was that like? Because my parents divorced later in life, and I can never explain to someone how painful and confusing it was because it's such an ambiguous... Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, every bad memory, and I'm really telling you the truth, almost everything that kind of impacted me during those years, I erased in my brain. So I can't even tell you that I ever remember my parents being together. I, can't, I don't even... I have no recollection of any moments where they were together. Um, but it's like what, an alcoholic, but for a healthy, a healthy in way. In a healthy to, way. It was my way of coping, and yeah. that actually transitions into my life in other ways as well. But 
Um, so I don't remember any of that. What I do remember is my mother crying after mm. they were divorced. And then I remember a series of um, bad choices made by her, um, trying to make up for what my father wasn't doing in terms of um, food, clothing, and shelter. So that landed her in prison. And uh, it landed me and my brother in a lot of different locations, um, from home to home, pastors, uh, teachers, aunts, uncles, and it was a really confusing place. So that's what I remember. Um, I actually envy my daughters who can tell me about their kindergarten, first grade, second grade teacher. I have no recollections of uh, that, only except for my first grade teacher, who was a black woman, and uh, she let me comb her hair after school. And she read books to me, and that was the, uh, it was a place that felt like home. Um, in my, in college, I did my thesis on resilience because I was obsessed yeah. about learning and meeting other survivors. Yeah. And um, mine was on people growing up in the Jim Crow era. Yes. I looked at Richard Wright, and I looked at Ann Moody and Skip Gates, all from different socioeconomic yes. backgrounds. And with, like, Richard Wright, who has this horrible, yeah. horrible yes. life, you know, it was one person outside. It was. It, I, I had never seen a, a black woman in the classroom, and, I, and wow. I had never felt anything like home. I just remember chaos, and um, it, that's all I remember, and my way of coping with that was music. So hmm. when I finally found, um, you know, this classroom, and, it, it, and I stayed with her for a little while, but it was only half of the school year because um, my mother came home from prison. We were living with my aunt and uncle at that time. She came home from prison, and she basically stripped me away from that, not knowing that that's what she was doing. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, I will never forget my um, first grade teacher, Mrs. Bolton. I wish I could find her today and show her what she did. Um, but yes. the best way that I have found um, the way to do that is to do what I do. Also, you, you lived with your aunt and uncle. Were they also musically talented? They were not musically talented, but okay. what my, you know, it was my mother's sister. There mm-hmm. was no, they were not musically talented, but they took us to church. And that's where the music and the, and the talent was displayed. So, and then there was this whole. Um, I feel like with artists, like it's inside you. Cause it was inside. Say, yeah. but, but see, the thing is, is that. My uncle was extremely interesting because he grew up in the church where the church said no music, no secular music, no nothing, no wear your toes out, no, you know, the women had to wear hosiery, the skirts to the thing, the heads covered, all of that. But my uncle was so, he was, he was so incredible because he took us to dog shows. He exposed oh, wow. us to all kinds of music. He, we went to the beach. We did. And I don't even, so he kind of like showed us how to kind of like break the rules, yes. but still stay in the confines. So he showed us all of this. And I just remember that when I missed my mother, because there were a few yeah. bouts of times where she would go and come um, for, the, for the same reasons. In her mind, she felt like if we had everything, if we had stuff, then that was her way of showing us love. Mm. And so the, the stuff was at the risk of whatever, meaning if she had to take it from somebody, but that was her way of showing love. So we understood that, and we never stopped loving her. Now, we ch- were challenged by the fact that we just wanted her to sit there and talk to us, but it's what she knew. So in terms of the exposure to anything outside of that, it was my uncle um, that brought that stuff to us. And then my father, on my father's side, my father was a saxophonist. Oh, wow. I come from a long line of uh, singers. My grandmother played the piano. And, and they grew up uh, in Texas? They, my grandmother grew up some in Texas. She was born and raised in Arizona. So okay. they, we're, we're, we're gypsies. Yeah. I, we, I, I was everywhere. I've been everywhere. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I had, all I had when I had nothing else was music. And I remember at about 11 years old, you know, I kind of overheard some conversations about, you know, how they were tired of taking care of us. And uh, so I just went outside. And I started mowing lawns to make sure that I could take care of me and my brother and that they would that we would be as least of a burden for them. And I also had made up in my mind that if I would rid the world of myself, then all they would have is my brother to take care of. Um, and that I would leave him with the money because, again, that's how we did it. You know, if they don't have to buy him anything, then I'll get out the way and then. And, um, you were older? 
I was 11. Oh, I'm older than my brother. Yeah. yeah. What's your brother's name? Jonathan, but we call him Joe. Okay. And jo Joe's hilarious. Yeah. How many years younger? Um, he's two and a half years younger than okay. I am. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I kind of just went out and started working and <clears throat> uh, God spared my life. And I heard clearly as day that my life had purpose. Yeah. Having to have the whole world on your hand and having to make these decisions, you know, whether or not you're going to live or die or more than somebody else is going to live or die. Um, that's big. It's heavy. And um, and you had it from day one. You know, from day one, you from knew. From day one, all I know how to do is be a mother. Even my brother, he got in his car uh, three months ago, his truck, brought his kids, and now there's seven of us living in the house, including my mother. So I have always been that go-to person for my, for my family. My brother is like my son. Um, my mother lives in the house, but in terms of and what's that like with her it was challenging because i spent a lot of a lot of years being angry because i couldn't be a child i i spent a lot of years um being frustrated that when i wanted to do something i always had to think about the next person because remember then I, I don't know if you know but 16 years old i was pregnant with my first child yes so um was her father helpful or no i just okay. you know i kind of I laid down to spite my father, and I got the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, which is what, um, I can't even explain it. So it was that moment that, again, it was just another moment on the journey that kind of just said, okay, what's your purpose? What You know, I, I'm always asking myself. And so she gave me another purpose, and it was no longer the rest of the world. It was this chick and my brother. You know, I was a teenager yes. feeding a baby. That's really what it was, you know. So, you know, with my... And this is in San Francisco. This is, I got, okay. So after the, um, the, the suicide attempt. Yes. Right? I was, I heard that my life had meaning. But my grandmother said, I can't do this um, with these kids. And Charles, Jean, come and get your kids. And so I ended up in Salt Lake and stayed there, Salt Lake City, Utah. Who was there? My father was there. The church... Okay. Um, my grandparents had found a church that actually had relocated in Utah. Hmm. So at that point, that's where they were there. So my brother actually was born in Utah. I, I, if there's a way for you guys to see the Book of Mormons. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to talk about therapy that you need, you must go see. <laughs> Listen, I live in it. Again, it's just so funny because it's, it's like, it's how do you land in this place? And pain takes you from place to place and you just keep learning and growing from it. But yeah, like my, I, I ended up in Utah, stayed with my dad for a number of years. That was a fiasco because again, it went from, one level of raising my brother to another level of raising my brother and my father. <clears throat> and your father then, the, too, couldn't, couldn't be an adult then also. He was not an adult. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time with my grandparents, which, which is probably the most ability that I've ever had in my life until I decided, until I married my husband. Do you remember the moment after you, you wanted out um, that you say that you had this epiphany, you know, that you felt like, oh, no, 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 I have a purpose. I'm meant to be here. Well, yeah, I mean, because it was in the hospital. I thought I had intended to die, and um, I didn't die. And so I laid there, and I heard it. And so then I was just like, well, and this is all in my brain. And then I said, well, if I'm supposed to be here, then you have to guide me, and you have to show me who you are, and, um, and, I'll, and I'll follow you. And if you take care of me, then I know that I'll be fine. Okay. I surrendered to God. I let it all go. I started writing letters to him and telling him what I wanted in life and uh, trusted that he would give it to me. I, I call it rock bottom. Like, I never yeah. did drugs or alcohol, but I consider that, that rock time bottom. my rock bottom. I never did those things either. But that, that's exactly how it I... was the moment where you find that voice that yes. is bigger than you and you don't know how you're going to do it. And then you try to muzzle it with your actions because you don't want to hear it. You don't want to be responsible for such bigness. And then, um, and then you make another mistake. But I don't like to call my daughter a mistake, but mm -hmm. I wanted to muzzle the sound. And um, so... She's not the mistake. She's it's not the, the mistake. It's the circumstance. It's the circumstance. So I gave, um, <clears throat> I gave her life. And at that point, it was I had to challenge myself and I had to tell her in the hospital room by myself um, that I will not be a statistic. 
these are promises that I made to her at 17 because I had her at 17. I will not be a statistic. I will get my college degree. I don't care how long it takes me. You will eat every day and you will always have a roof over your head. And that was as big for me as it could get. That's as, as big for anyone as it could get. Yeah, I mean, that, was, that was huge for me. So I kept doing that, and I just kept doing that, and I have kept How did promise. you, how, how did, I mean, because you went to Rutgers, which is a phenomenal school. Yeah, well, I, mean, I started out in community colleges, because at that point, when I found out that I was pregnant, when I didn't have a few, you know, periods. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like something's different. Becoming a woman is great. I'm a little bit more often, <laughs> and I can't keep my eyes open in class. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I got to cut down on what I'm eating. Exactly. Although, those pickles exactly. look really good. I wonder what they taste like with peanut butter on them. <laughs> but I uh, ended up out of fear. I thought my dad was going to kill me. So I... Isn't it weird? Like, let's just break this down. Because I always feel like someone is so scared they're going to die from their parents' hand. Usually when, like, they're, they could die in so many other ways. Like, I think it's really funny that, like... Yeah. <laughs> The fear like, is greater <laughs> right, of the parent. Yes. Then jumping off, falling off a bridge yeah. or a ladder or something. Yeah. Like, actually, you could have died any one of those <laughs> days. Exactly. <laughs> Every time you got in a car with another teenager, you were actually risking your life. But you going home. Exactly. Going home and telling my father, look at my father in the face. Because I knew how he was with just me sitting next to any boy. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, really? Okay. Oh, he was, it, I mean, to the point where if he were on an island, if he said be in that house of six, I was in that house of six. Not that he ever put his hands on me. Yes. It was a certain level of fear that I had about, he was extremely overprotective. And um, and we feared that. And we revered it. You know, it was like you honor what they say. and Totally. So it was the, it was something about that moment where I felt like my life had meaning that empowered me. And I don't, I can't I can't even really explain it, but I knew at that point that I was supposed to be here. Because yes. if I wasn't, then I would have gone. Yep. Okay? So I carried that with me. So you had went back, and did your aunt and uncle know? They did know at that moment. At okay. that moment that I told my mom, the entire family knew. Okay. Because <laughs> your mom... mom. Okay. <laughs> so we'll be sure to tell her exactly. what's going on in Syria and, exactly. you know, all the secrets for the... <laughs> so she told everyone, and then... My aunt, who was like a mother, her sister, the same aunt, wow. kicked in. She got me the prenatal vitamins because I was still running track. She got me everything that I needed. You were still running track? I was running, nobody knew that I was pregnant. And let me tell you this, Katie, and I swear to this on the Bible, I never felt my child move until I said that I was pregnant. She Wait, never moved. Okay, so I'm fascinated because they have these like TV shows where someone will be I like... I never felt her move, move in my body until my mind told my mouth to say it and when I said it it was I'm here I'm and it was boom boom she made sure that I knew that she was there but it wasn't until I said it wait so did you go to the doctors or anything my aunt started sending me to the doctor I went to the doctor I had her two months later amazing and in the hospital they were all there um my mother my father oh wow my two aunts and Earth Mother Freeborn. Oh, okay, so she's she's a doula she or a, a midwife? A midwife. And I had, because my aunt had worked for the hospital, she was able to set me up in what they call the Alternative Birth Center. They called it the ABC room. And what year, because this is San Francisco, this so I need to know the... 1987. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, 1987. So I'm this teenager and in the room. So the, this alternative birth, alternative birth Center was a room that looked like a room at home, Okay. So I had said, but you can't have any medication in the room. So I had said in my mind that I was not going to have medication, that I was going to push it out if I had Algerol playing. Oh, how wonderful. Right. So when did you discover, when the, did you discover, and I, just for people who don't know, Algerol is a phenomenal yeah. uh, jazz musician. Um, when did you discover him? You had talked about seeing him on television. I was visiting my father and I saw him on television and I had always heard the song, We're in this love together, but I... I didn't connect to the person until I saw him on television. He was playing these gourds and all these weird looking instruments that fascinated me. And I became like, when I say obsessed, I became obsessed. If I don't have anything else, Katie, 
I have a mental toughness that even blows my mind well, you sometimes. Have beautiful, incredible talent. And for people who have not heard you sing, they must go to YouTube and yeah. come see you live. You're just unbelievable. <laughs> Fly you. me to the moon. But it comes <laughs> from a whole totally different place that it comes from all that. So when I sing, I open my mouth only to heal the next person. It has nothing to do with me. It's for the child or the child in that person that got all messed up along the way. But it's, That's it's, what it's for. That's who it's for. It's so beautiful because you are the definition of resilience in your own story, but then your art speaks for itself as a, your talent speaks for itself. Back to after the, my daughter was born. Yeah. Okay. So she's born. I make the promise to her. I spend the rest of my life trying to fulfill that promise. Um, I get in a, at a very low point, homeless. We said to live in a motel, she and I, and um, because I had I had no help. Now there was these little spurts of help along the way, but in terms of people wanting to see you elevated, I yes. didn't have that. So it was every single day walking this little chick to class with me. I started taking her to college with me when she was in a car seat. And she went with me, and my professors welcomed her. By the time she got to nursery school, she's like, actually, I've and already I, taken <laughs> college-level classes. She, yeah. Blocks are a exactly. little... Exactly, <laughs> that's what she said. Because she actually... It's funny that you said it, because we sent her to college, but she did not finish college. She was done with school. She was done in her mind. And she will go back for... But it, it, it will be for what she loves to do. It's yeah. not just because she lives in the suburbs now and, you know, that's what the suburban kids do. It's not that. It's, it wasn't my version of it. It's her version of it. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, she was tired of classrooms. And um, after that, I just, you know, got at a very low point, still writing these letters to God, just keep continuing to go on through life. And um, on one of those visits to go visit my aunt, I met my husband. We were 14. Oh, my God. I keep taking you back and forth. No, but I we're, met him. we're there. We're there with you. I met him. Um, he was 14. I was 14, getting ready to turn 15. I met him. Where did you guys meet? Uh, it was a church convention. My uncle was taking us to this church convention. It was in L.A. I was visiting my uncle at that time from Salt Lake. And um, his father is a, is, a, is a bishop of the organization, right? And so they're at this national convention that the church has. On the last day, I woke up that morning and something said, my stomach would not, it couldn't, it just wouldn't rest. It was like butterfly. And I didn't understand that because I wasn't looking for anything. And something as plain as I'm talking to you, something good is going to happen to you. Now, this is before the pregnancy. Something good is going to happen to you. When I saw Lee, my, who's my husband now, yes. he said, that's it. So when I left there, I told my cousins on the ride home, I met my husband today. I can't believe this. Well, I first said of all, it. I know I haven't met mine because I've never woken up with that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I ate too much. That's why my stomach was nauseous. I knew. When I saw him, it said, that's, that's your husband. That's him. And I knew. So I told my um, cousins on the way home. So when I got back to Utah, right? Yeah. Got back to Utah, he had a birthday card waiting for me. I turned 15. Had a birthday card waiting for me, and the rest was history. Back to, I'm now after my daughter. There's a couple years of homelessness. I'm not letting my husband even know, or my he's not even a boyfriend at the time. He's just my friend. He doesn't even know that I've had this baby by somebody else, who I had just out of spite to my father. He doesn't even know. But my husband would everywhere that I would go. He would, or if he, if I talked to him on the payphone, you'll spend my last dollar and thirty-five cents on the payphone. Should we explain what payphones are to kids today? You know, we just, I just did yesterday. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? Did your daughter not know what a payphone is? She knew what it was, but we were just talking about it yesterday. Right. If my husband would hear me say, you know, I'm going to go visit my grandfather in Texas, what's your grandfather's name? I didn't know that he was writing down this information. So if he couldn't find me, he could call that person wow. and try to. So he would be looking for me, and I didn't even know that he was looking for me. Wow. Yeah. So um, Was that hard to take in that much love also? It's still hard to. It it's, it's can be consuming for me sometimes, like too much. It's too much for me because it's smothering. And my parents always told my grandfather, I was just talking to him yesterday, he said, Carmen, you've always been that kid where the moment that you were born, we knew that you had wings, 
and we knew that if we clipped them, that you would suffocate and die. So my family already knew that that's what I was made out of. It was challenging for my husband because everything was so structured. They didn't do anything without the other. So living with me was challenging. Like when we first got married and he'd say, you know, where are you going? I'd be like, what do you mean where am I going? (laughs) What call you? I'm not calling you. (laughs) You're going to have to get used to this. You know, and even sometimes now it's like I need creativity or whatever. It's like I'll see you guys in five days. I'm going to be in the dark. Really, I'm going to a hotel. They won't know where it's at. I'm going to be in the dark and find out what I'm supposed to do next. Wow. And he gets that. I love it. Not every man can do that. No, I think it's a harder thing for a female artist or entrepreneur, you know, we mm-hmm. have the spirit in you because if you were a guy, you'd get away with it. And no oh, one, heck no yeah. one would. Before ask. man, yes, some serious trust here. And my kids know it. And so when my mom came into the house and she started seeing me like this, she didn't understand it. Like, why do you need to be away? We'll just go in your room and close the door. But it's not that. It's very, very different. And she's not an artist, so she doesn't get it. So I needed that human being in my life because he's the only person that could love me the way that I needed to be loved. And he knew and trusted that I would be able to give it back if he surrendered to letting me fly. And he did. When did you start discovering your music? Um, well, because I had grew up in the church, you know, I, I always had a mic in front of my, in front of my okay. face. Okay. I was, but I hated it. I hated it because it was forced on me. It was like, sing. And so that meant that if I was in church, I had to sing if guests were at the house, sing. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was my mother's and my aunt's pride of having this family member that could do something other than rob and steal. Yes. You understand? Yes. So it was forced on me, and I hated it. And so I closed my mouth. I did not want to sing, and I didn't sing for many, many years. And then um, I, when I... When I surrendered in one of the many times that we do surrender back to God, I said that if you don't take away my gift, I will use it. You can get signs and not see them. We don't pay attention. Half the time, we don't. things don't happen because we're not conscious. Javier Bardem has been knocking at my door every night, and I don't hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're unconscious. And, and at I that moment, you were present. Conscious. Yeah, I was present because I was looking for it. I wanted to know I had graduated. I had fulfilled the next promise for my daughter. And I wanted to know what to do next. 16 years it took me to get my degree. Um, I had been going through community colleges. And, and uh, Rutgers let me in because I would, the, the first letter that I got where they said, you're not accepted, I said, you're a liar. Good for you. And I am going to be accepted. And I'm going to graduate from a college what I felt like prestige because um, nobody in my family had done it. Education was empowerment. And somehow I got in a situation where um, a pastor had come to our church and he said, you're very different than the people in this congregation. Do you want to come out to the church in New York? Wow. And I said, well, maybe this is the prayer that God has been answering. I didn't know where I was going. He said, well, you could stay at my house. And now that family. you know the rent prices, you're like, right. <laughs> can I still stay? I'll leave my kids exactly. in New Jersey. <laughs> it, was just, it was just like, you're different, and um, you don't look like anything in this San Francisco church. So he invited me to the New, New York church, and I got out here, and his wife said, that chick is, you know, without even sounding boastful in any kind of way, she was like, that chick is not coming in my house. Because you're so beautiful. Yeah. In her mind. Well, you are so I was broken, but thank you. But she didn't want that. And I don't blame her. I got it. Um, But it left me feeling homeless again. Yeah. Um, So I left my daughter. I came out here to kind of see things out, um, check things out and see how they were. I left my daughter with my dad for those, for that moment. She didn't, she didn't, the wife didn't want me there. I understood that. Had to stay with one of his church members who was really crazy, literally crazy. But it was another moment where I was on my island, where I could hear, know what I was supposed to do. I found a way to get my daughter, my, my, who was now my mother-in-law. My husband was away at college at that point. He came to visit me, and uh, his mom brought me home, right? Brought me to the woman's house. 
Wait, I want to, okay, sorry, go back because okay. I got a little confused. So you're married at this point? No. Okay. Mm -mm. My husband is a sophomore in college. He found me, okay. right? I, when I, and when he's I started at Penn State. He was at Penn State. Okay. He found me, um, and the pastor that was the pastor of the New York church was also the pastor of our church in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Okay. 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 So we missed, he invited, we missed that small part. I'm sorry, but he got, <laughs> that's how I ended up back in New York. That's how I ended in New York. Okay. So at that point, it's closer to where my husband is or my boyfriend. At, at that time, point, at that point, he's boyfriend. your boyfriend. Okay. He kind of had transitioned into something. And um, yeah. And so he came home from school. I love the euphemism. It kind of transitioned into something. I think we all know <laughs> how that yeah. transition happens. He, um, yeah, because we were just friends. And he was just somebody that I could rely on. And in my own brain, it was like, this is the one thing that I can't rely on because it's never going to go anywhere. He keeps finding me. He keeps, he's always in my face, even though he's not present. His voice is always there saying, if you want to go to college, you can go to college. He's the only one that I had for that, right? So I end up in New York. He comes home from school to visit home. Wow. They come and pick me up. We go, I go and hang out with his family, this biracial couple that spend all of their lives trying to help people. Had no idea. And when she his parents are biracial. His parents. What's his, his mom's well, his background? parents. I'm sorry, his parents. They're uh, interracial. Interracial. She's black. He's white. What's biracial? Why did I say that? When when the kid when it's a combination. Oh, for a second, yeah. I was thinking like, well, they're bisexual and no. interracial. <laughs> it's a very open home. <laughs> yeah, interracial couple. Yeah. So he's white. She's black. Okay. She invites me to come and live with her, and I did not accept that offer. Why not? I said no. Because I didn't want them to think that I had come to snatch their son up. I came to save my life. And I didn't want to. And I, also, maybe you weren't ready yet, you know? It was, I was ready because of the conditions. I was sleeping on someone's hardwood floor. It wasn't good. It wasn't that much food. Carmen. It was crazy. But it gave me prayer time. It gave me uh, fasting time. It gave me island time. There was no pressure because my dad, my daughter was in the hands of my dad and I could find myself again and see what was next for this area of my life. Now, mind you, I couldn't find my mother. My brother at that point was in prison because his only option for his part of survival was to sell drugs, mm -hmm. to eat. 18, to sell drugs and eat. And that landed him in prison. So, as you can long tell him as a black man, he doesn't even have to sell drugs to land in prison. He can just walk down the street if he wants to go there. <laughs> he can just wear baggy jeans, <laughs> yes, braid exactly his hair. Right. <laughs> just smile. He could be reading, you know, <laughs> check off. <laughs> <They're still getting. laughs> You're home. I love you. Yeah. So, I waited until he went to prison. I did everything that I could to get him out. Okay. I went into the courtroom. And I knew I was doing a lot for him, but I could only do so much for him. So he, if he wanted to be with me, he knew that he had to be on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. But when he was away from me, he was hungry because in order to do, in order for him to be with me, he had to do what was right. And sometimes he always wanted to do what was right, but he also wanted to do what he wanted to do because he was a teenager. Yeah, it's like these two parts of you. Right. And you have So when he came Mr. to me, he came and he was able to sleep, he was able to rest. When he was ready to play, he went out, but he had to feed himself. And it was survival for him. And I got that. Yeah. But he knew what my expectations are, even today. He knows what my expectations are. And um, he went to prison, and I begged around town to see if I could get somebody to put their home up for him to get him out, you know, just like Bill, that I would vouch for him if he, you know, I would keep him close to me. And, and where was he in prison? All of that. He ended up in San Quentin okay. for 18 oh my months. God. At 18 years old. Yeah, it was tough. Um, I was the, the chick when he What had, was he selling? It must have been good. It was... <laughs> 
crack. <laughs> Look crack. Get in San Quentin. <laughs> but it was good for him because had he just gone to jail, it was first time, but had he just gone to jail, oh, it wasn't just that. Alyssa, I forget. He was selling crack, but he had guns. Okay. That they found in the house. Survival. So I go to court, and there is no hope for him to get out. I didn't even recognize him when I walked in oh. there. There was no hope for him to get out. 18 months. I said, I have 18 months to do what I'm supposed to do to bring him to where he needs to be. I took my daughter, and that's when we came east. Okay? Wow. And I had 18 months to get myself together so that when he got out, he could have a place to stay. Wow. Okay? So I didn't want my mother-in-law, my yes, friends. To, to be a part of this. I didn't want them to have anything to do with that, and I didn't want them to think that I came to swallow their son up. Because I was not what their version of what they wanted for their sons, if I could, in my mind. Yeah. But he was everything that I needed, and I was everything that he needed. But that was personal between us. Yes. But in terms of what you want, you want your son or your daughter to marry the church boy. Oh, the church, yeah, you know, of course. All that. Oh, yeah, please. So, but they didn't even know any, all of these details until no. I graduated from college. Nobody but, knows how bad it really is. Yeah. I, I, you know, in general, I think that people right. always think things are a little bit better than they yeah. are. Yeah, and then um, I had to get my daughter because at that point she was going into crazy mode. She was sleeping with my clothes, and she needed me. So I figured out a way how to get her there. The night that we got there, in the dark, the woman's cat was on my daughter's face. And I woke up that morning and called Lee's father, uh, mother and said, can you come get us? She was there by 9 o'clock a.m. Oh, wow. Yeah. I could have dealt with that, but I didn't want Ashley to have to deal with that. How, how old was Ashley at the time? She was four, getting five. Okay. So. Does she like cats now? She actually she's, she's allergic, allergic I'm sure. Her face. <laughs> but uh, that's what made me call her. It wasn't about me. It was about her. And uh, so we went and lived. So while Lee was away in college, we lived in his parents' house. It's amazing. And that was the moment that I met stability. And I stayed there for two and a half years until he got out of there. When he got out of there, I got my own place. From there on, he graduated two years later. I don't even have to ask, are you close with his family? <laughs> well, we have, our, we have challenges. I bet. We have had challenges. Yeah. Because the whole church thing, you know, his father is a pastor. And I'm not a regimented person. I'm an artist, and I don't think that the church knows. They're learning how to cope with that and learning how to use it. But they didn't get it to me. And so... I ended up leaving their church. My husband is still there for his own reasons. But there was not an eye roll. You did not hear you did not hear an eye roll. <laughs> but I'm not there. So Because in Judaism also you get this break. You're like I'm Jewish even though I don't go to synagogue necessarily. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're Catholic, that's it. You either are or you're not. And yeah. I think it's an important thing because the there's these different parts of the triangle with religion. Right. You've got the community aspect, then you have the morals, and you have spirituality, right. and the idea that like God can only exist in, in a house space. or something like yes. that. So you go outside, he's not there, right. or she's not there, or it's not there. Like I'm just like, well, no, and no, they no, saw possible. family and church as one. Yes. So I, by first, it shifted with their son who moved away, who moved out of the t out of the state and stopped going to the church. That was something that they had to deal with. So it was like. Oh, on that one, but then I came to have in, him leave to, to have him leave their church. Yeah, was devastating because they saw ch church and family as one. It's like yes. you go to church, everybody goes to their religious. House and eats. Yeah, yeah, and we had to adjust that thinking, which was challenging. So I'm very close to them, but they know that I'm the voice that will speak. Everybody else will do what they want to do, but I will challenge. I will challenge them with my mouth. And I don't know where that came from. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's a great gift. And I think it's a great gift to them. I feel like I'm speaking for other people. But, I mean, one could argue that Jesus was that same voice. He was exactly that. So, I mean, in many ways, you're, you're bringing it back in and saying, no, no, religion is if actually looking, open to interpretation. Right. And 
what I had to explain to them as well is there are levels of dysfunction in every family. Yes. And even perfection or the thought or the concept of perfection is dysfunction. Yes. And I have to say to him, listen, listen to this music because it, he grew up listening to, if it didn't say Jesus in it, you weren't, it was secular and you weren't allowed to listen to it. But then I brought Stevie Wonder to his life and Donny Hathaway and all these people who were, who, 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 who used their gift to make change. Mm -hmm. And he was like, whoa, chick, what is this? You know? It's amazing. And is it amazing that you can grow up in this country and still be so closed off from the rest yes. of the world? There's so many people grow up. And like he this. was. And even and I used to say, you know, I challenged him on some of his things. Like, you know, you're very biased. Like you what what, what you know, I used to ask my husband, what do you what do you want? I don't know, whatever you want. No. Tell me what you want. Yes. Yeah. And when he would say it, it would be what his parents wanted or what everybody was everybody else was always a factor. And I was challenged by that. What do you want? And that was dysfunctional to me because if you can't think and speak on your own, if your feelings, if you can't interpret things based on your own voice and not somebody else's, then what are you? But what that's an amazing gift that you have because very few people who are as artistically talented as you are as a writer and as a singer yeah. and who have their own voice so yeah. clearly, which you do, yeah. you have a real voice in your, in your work, are also able to be loving and generous. Basically... Most people who are that it talented are a little narcissistic. Yeah, right. And so you no. you don't you have both of these gifts in two totally different yeah. areas that don't necessarily come together. You know what my husband always says? That's the unique thing about me. He says Carmen is an artist, but she is the most um, you know like structured artist because we you, we don't usually put that in the same category. But he was like, you can come. He said, if I came home and said, let's go to Nicaragua, Carmen would say yes. She would walk I would too, barefoot. if you guys want yeah. to go. Okay. <laughs> and you will one day. Um, she would do that, but we would also be on the plane in 30 minutes. Everybody would be packed. The house would be sold. Yeah. That, be, but your experiences caused you to do that. So I didn't have the freedom like some of my relatives to just hop on the Grateful Dead bus and freebase. And I had people counting on me. So Some see that as punishment anyway, <laughs> so don't worry. But I, I do think that's also what makes you a successful artist, and that is the business part of knowing to get on that train and knowing yeah. to get on that plane and be ready. You have to feel it exactly. When the train comes, you have to get on it. And that was the challenge that I had with my husband because everything was so structured. He wouldn't, buy, he wouldn't ever jump out of the box because it was scary. But in the meantime, you're suffocating. You're suffocating us in the structure. Structure's good. We've already determined that it's good. Right. But now I'm dying because... I wilting, have, wilting. I was dying. T tell me about the books because I, I, there's so many. I have The Gifted Guitar, right. New York and the Boogeyman, yeah. Music, a Language, language. Music's a Language, yeah. I'm just learning English, Social Eyes, <laughs> Faces of Ma Many, Manny. and Ashley Meets Birdman Owl. Yeah, Ashley Meets Birdman Owl. Okay, so after the kids, it's like, you know, I, I couldn't be, again, confined in the structures of the politics of school. They were about to lose their music program. I couldn't deal with that. You know, so I said, you know, I came home aggravated one day and I told my husband, I said, there has to be a way to reach more children. He said, Carmen, bring out your stories. I brought them out. I thought they would be the stories that when my children went off to get married and they didn't want to be bothered with me, I would then start writing children's books. He said, bring them out. I brought them out. And I wanted to dedicate my first book to Alvin Rock to give it to him because he carried me. So Birdman Al is likened after him. And, tell, and talk jazz. a little, because now, Al Jarreau, yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. were working together. You wanted your yeah. autograph. I Why? wanted to hear everything. Uh, okay, so on these, okay, going back to the moments of, you know, when I was in Salt Lake City, I, I, when I worked, I, I worked to help my brother but, and give my dad what I needed to give him. But I also worked to buy albums. And every album of Al Jarreau's, I had them spread across on the wall. And I, I just said, like, I want to meet him one day. 18 years old, my, there these two white chicks. I loved them. You know, I never had a race thing. White people helped me. I'm not, I'm telling the truth about right. that. Um, but they sent me well, to because people out. helped you. People helped me. But the thing about it in my family is that we didn't really expose ourselves yeah. outside of anything. You know, it was like, you're always like, beware. I didn't, I didn't feel that. 
These no. were people who had what I didn't have. And I wanted it. That, and that's the exact right response yeah. of, of like, all right, what does this person have right. that I need and I deserve? Right. And it was freedom. It was a father who did what he was supposed to do. It was everything opposite of, but I wanted it. Not in any kind of selfish way. I just wanted no, no, no. access to it. It's, it's yeah. an understanding that you are human and you deserve these things. Right. And it was so opposite. They were peaceful. They would go to the beach and not worry about whether or not they were working. They were not, you know, everything that I, I was, I watched very intensely. And uh, these two girls. This is because you're a survivor. And how do I get that? And how do I get this? And yeah. that also is an American thing of like, yes. oh, I can go out and get this. Yes. You know It's, it's available. There. If somebody says this if is available. If it's not at Target, it might be at Walmart. <laughs> but that is kind of, you know, like, that okay, is. I'm going to pull from here and pull from there and pull from here. I mean. White that people is. also bring you the, you know, most serial killers. You know, I mean, there are other things that white people offer that you don't want. So they got me an Algero ticket. And I went to that concert and I was literally singing every single lyric, every single word, everything, dancing. I knew everything, every scat. I stayed with them. Wow. And I didn't even know anybody was paying attention. And there was somebody behind me and said, would you like to go backstage and meet him? And I did. And he sang happy birthday to me. And so what did that do? It gave me hope. It gave me a push to get more from it. Meeting your mentors is the biggest thing in the world. God. It's so exciting. Access? You mean to tell me that this person isn't far away? Yes. Right. Right? Right. So then you do it. And then every single time I go to a concert, I have that opportunity. And he didn't even know anything, how he was in, none of that. So then I wrote the book, right? Yes. And I reach out to Ashley meets his Birdman manager. Now. Like, listen, I need to tell him that he saved my life. And she didn't get back to me. She didn't get back to me, and that's okay. I got it. But then a year later, because I wanted him to do the forward at the time, a year later, I got back. I said, listen, Fiona, you know, like, here's what's happening now. Here's an update. She said he has a new manager. I contacted that manager. He was like, oh, my God, I would be so thrilled about this. So even though it gets challenging hearing a million and one no's, you have to believe in your stuff enough that if I got from that room in Salt Lake City to Algero asking me for my autograph, what else can I get? But it means so much more coming from you to hear this, yeah. to hear, to be open, and to be possible, because you also know how many people unfairly don't get to go to college, are stuck in prison. You know, you, you also know the reality yeah. that so many people don't get what they deserve. Yeah, I know. They don't get their humanity. But you have seen. to believe that. Yeah. And work for it and all these things. You but have to believe in yourself. I, I can't even explain that, that even the man in prison, I mean, even Hurricane Carter. Yes. You know right. what I mean? You can't contain passion. No, absolutely. I was going to say that uh, I, we've heard all these people who were in prison and, and Nelson Think Mandela. and Yeah. I'd rather not. I'm, well, I know, but <laughs> see, Jewish, oh, bless you. Jewish studies was my minor. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, I'm not. Wait, okay, so you need to So understand. my kids went to um, uh, Purim services. This is amazing. By the way, in Israel, Purim, they get all dressed up and they drink all night. <laughs> we have a my cousin that lives in, in uh, Israel. Is that right? Mm -hmm. my, my brother gets dressed up in drag. Really? Well, don't ask me. But they, that's... <laughs> I don't know if that's a religious thing. No, I'm kidding. It's definitely not a religious thing. But that is really funny. I expose my kids to everything that I learned, but Jewish studies was my minor. That's so interesting to hear from me because my grandfather made money, and he went and worked with Martin Luther King Jr., and he brought wow. Martin Luther King oh, Jr. Yeah. into Jewish homes. He said, this is our problem. And the so First supporters of the NAACP. My, my dad worked for SNCC. He was yes, done legal. Yes. And both wow. my brother and I, also, we studied the civil rights movement. So it's, it's just an interesting that that was, I mean, I grew up in D.C. Yeah. So it's also, it's different. this is my family. Oh, okay, okay. Kind okay. of approach. No, yeah, meaning yeah, yeah, like yeah. the city is my family. Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, and you're my family, about in terms of the race thing. Yeah, yeah and yeah, my yeah. family is 90% black yeah. and they're not getting what, the, the, what they deserve, what they deserve what at all. What they're working hard Still. for. Still. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, you have a black wealthy and black middle class, but you yeah. also have this horrible poverty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And you saw that as your family. That's beautiful. Yeah. As your yeah. community. These are your right. people. It changes everything to be exposed to people from different yeah. cultures. It really changes I, your life. My kids know so much about everybody because 
when I got off of, you know, I am this black woman kind of thing. And I don't want to, but I got off of it from an angry way, from an angry angle. Yeah, and you need to have that to bolster yourself and know who you are. I had to have it because I, you know, because it was allowed me to put the mirror in my face, stand in front of the mirror naked and say, you're okay. Like you're all jacked up. You have these marks here. You've been through this, you've been through that, but you are still standing. I have. And beautiful. Thank you, babe. I had that, but I also had white people who helped me. My father-in-law is white. I had people that helped me along the way. You should tell him it's okay. He still have to. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly but it's right. funny because the church, yeah. which is predominantly black, yeah, he had to feel, but he was a Vista. You have to hear his story. But he was a Vista. He helped black migrant workers. That's how oh, I found wow. my mother-in-law. Oh, wow. Um, he was the hippie, you know, the no-shirt uh, hitchhiking kind of guy hitchhiked I think over a hundred thousand miles oh my god he's a he's he's an amazing dude he really is and uh he um you know he helped me and so the race thing wasn't I was never a racist but I was so passionate about my blackness because I had found her those are two different things but um I, I when, never, I, but I, but I got away from even a part of that to say, my children will know about human beings. Yes, absolutely. And I will not make race a, a topic. They can marry somebody purple if they want to, if he treats her well, because black men did not always treat me well. I asked myself, why would I write children's books? Because I never was one. When can I laugh and play freely? Yeah, that there was still a ch- you keep that child within. That's what makes. I had to find one. I didn't. There wasn't one. I had to create one. And Ashti gave me that. So how could I do that? I had no models to work from. So it's well, you have Ashley and Ashanti who have all these funny things that they do on a daily basis. That everything is a big deal. That we have funerals for fish. That when your tooth is missing, we celebrate it. In a very large way at Hibachi, you know, what is Hibachi? Oh my God, I never knew what Hibachi All that. And then you look at their life and then you look at the things that are messed up about it and you create something that this other human being, and then you find yourself, what do you want to say to these kids? And then your kids give you voice from kindergarten. Then you go, and then all these other voices, and then you said, oh, so Ashley can be this, so Ashley can be that. Yes. So your other characters can be this, they can be that. And then I'm like, I'm giggling at my own self. Like, I just created a cartoon where the, the little sister, guitar? No. Now I have a cartoon. It's a called Duty and the Swagjackers. And I'm presenting that now to Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. Oh, that's exciting. I'm so excited about that. I have right now Holly Robinson Pete taking a look at my um, Ashley's Do Crew, which is a show, which is a cartoon. I'm trying to get them to, uh, you know, network television, some networks. If they are listening, because there is a show with a black lead character right now. Just came out. And I wanted it's doing Ashley, really well. Yeah, I wanted Ashley to be the first one, but Ashley will, Ashley will be her competitor. Yeah. I guarantee well, and, In a it good sh- way. Which shows you that there is a demand for it. And that we're now there. Yes, absolutely. I, don't you feel like things have changed in the oh, last couple God, of years? Like, yeah. just the last couple of years, I feel like Hollywood is finally like, oh. Wow, there really <laughs> are black people that can think. Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> or I, that we can talk about them without talking about the, that other thing. Because my children, they used to be like, mommy, what am I? My oldest one used to be good. For, what am I? And it was because we finally hit the suburbs. And these girls were going to school with uh, 85 to 90% black. Mm-hmm. I mean, white. And they wanted to know what they were. Because mm-hmm. when people would ask them, because my girls have curly hair, and they wanted to know. Especially my oldest daughter, she was like, what am I? And I'm like, you're Ashley. I didn't know what answer to give her. You're Ashley. You're made up of some Native Americans. You have white. Yes. You have black. You have all this. And why do you have to tell anybody? Why do you have to call it one thing? Yes, that's right. So just say you're Ashley. And, but she really wanted an answer. And so she struggled with that because she wanted to be able to give people an answer because people didn't know if she was Hispanic. They didn't know if she was from the Middle East. They didn't know if she was from the islands. They didn't, they didn't know right. anything. And I said, they don't have to. Well, and also the idea that you're just one thing is not possible. You can't just say, I'm a Christian or I'm a female right. or I'm black. And even when you say, I'm a Christian who's black, 
and female, mm-hmm. you're still not Sticky. fully encompassing who mm-hmm. you are as an individual. You have to find the good. Yes. If you don't, your life, it's not about what happens to anybody else. It's if you cannot or choose not to find the good, then you're all messed up. Yeah. And you live in this state of misery that will not allow you to move forward. So I had to find it to live. It's about, like, to me, music and breath are the same thing. And I understand, I understand what happened. I I don't even quite understand it, but I can put music on and put it in my ears and my mind will open up and everything comes to me. It's, it's how I've healed. I can't even, the power of it is so great. Yes. It's like, I didn't even know this was in me until I put music into my ears. Right. So when you tell me that you're about to pull away a music program, the only way that I can voice it is not by going to set the school on fire, which is what I wanted to do. Yes. Or or the board of trustees. To music, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I put it out in a book. And then you have the life of a musician who, how did you get based on uh, The Gift of Guitar, is inspired by Jonathan Butler's life. How did you get from this poor place in South Africa at a bonfire, and now you're here changing my life? How did you get there? So how did you you meet him? I got an opportunity to sing with him one year. Crazy how you just get picked. Yes. Well, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's lucky for us. Right. Um, I want to tell everyone to go to your website, CarmenRubin.com, yeah. and also check out the Peppermint Publishing Company, which I think believe was started because your gr- grandfather, Robbie, Robbie yeah. Robinson, yeah. had the Peppermint Candy Club. He had a Peppermint Candy Club, and it was for all the little sick kids like me. <laughs> mentally, <laughs> and fi- mentally and or physically, they were able to qualify. Right. We, um, it, it wasn't any you know club that you paid for. It was just like if he saw that a kid had a need or you may have come to church or somebody got in trouble at church and he felt sorry for you, he would hand you a peppermint. You, he'd had him, he had them everywhere. You, I was like, how do you keep all these peppermint? But he would just kind of present this peppermint to you, this peppermint candy, and he gave it to you. And he said, now, you know, you're in Granddaddy's Peppermint Candy Club, but you know what you got to do when you get in it, you know? He said, I'm going to give this to you, and I'm showing you love. And you, he said, if don't nobody else love you, Granddaddy loves you. And that's what he would say. And so you felt like you were a part of something, your first club, your first something where you can actually get a title. Yeah. the vice president of the Peppermint Candy Club, right? And he gave it to you. And you felt like you were special, that even if at home you weren't treated that way, that Granddaddy loved you. But he also put the responsibility on you that once he gave it to you and you received that peppermint, you had to do that for somebody else. That's what the peppermint is all about. And so he said, God gave that to him. He wasn't looking for anything. He wasn't looking for it to be exposed into the world. But the peppermint is just a symbol of love. It's when I get it, I give it. And as I, and so every time I go to a school and I talk to kids, and when we have to find the hidden peppermint, you'll see them in, even in the I love it that kids so should look just, for the peppermint. If you see the peppermint, and, and it gives me almost like a where's wall. It gives me an opportunity to have the kids. I always want people to be into my book, not just read it. I want them to be in it. So, like, when you look at the gift of guitar and you see that peppermint, you have to now look for something else. It's a game that you're playing. Yeah. Or... If you see um, a blind boy and how this instrument uh, affected this blind boy and now he can see, that's me. It's so much symbolism in the book. Every element is some point, some part of me or some part of somebody that I know. I was blind, but now I can see when I was thirsty, he gave me drink and my, you know, and and then there's fruit um, from, from, from dry land to a fruitful land. Yeah, and then you had Brazil mentioned in it, all and these, South Africa, it ha- I loved it. it. Yeah. Because it's people. It's, it's, we're all one yeah. thing, and we come in all these different shapes and sizes. Some bigger shapes than I, others. Than I, I would rather a smaller shape in, my, in mine. I, I want to make sure, so people go to CarmenRubin.com, which is R-U-B-I-N, by the way, that is a very Jewish last name, it just is. so you know. C-A-R-M-E-N. Uh, R-U-B-I-N dot com. And then they can get your books there as well? They can. They okay. can get them there. They can also get them at Barnes & Noble. And then I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Barnes & Noble. 
You can go there and, and get them. Stores across Amazon, the which is yeah. great because it gets your numbers up, which you deserve. Yeah. Um, and you should also go see you perform music. Yeah. Um, this has been such a treat. I, 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 this was such a joy. I'm, I'm just as, um, I'm just as happy to be here. Well, can I sing for you? I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. Think about it every night and day. Spread my wings and fly away. I believe I can soar. See you running through the open door. I believe I can fly. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you for tuning in. If you would like to nominate someone for a dream job or get involved, subscribe to the podcast and find out about upcoming live shows at UCB, please check out our website, employeeofthemonthshow.com. Again, that's employeeofthemonthshow.com. Special thanks to you all, to UCB, Sirius XM, our audio engineers, Ian Mazoff and Damien Strange, and to the wonderful musicians, our house band, The New Guys, Arthur Lewis and Shockwave, who composed the beautiful theme music you're listening to. Again, thanks to all of you, and don't forget to get your parking ticket validated. Now i got to figure out where I locked up my bike. <laughs> <laughs>